Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm happy to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Patricia Meish. She is an unlikely activist. She led a modest, non-public life with no desire for a public one. She and her husband owned and operated an HVAC business in Tucson, Arizona. They raised their son, saved their money, and planned for retirement. But her life changed when she decided to attend a Congress on Your Corner event on January 8, 2011. It was at this point that Patricia became first a witness to a mass shooting, then a survivor, and finally, one who could not stay silent about gun violence. At this event, a murderer killed six citizens, including a nine-year-old girl, and injured 18 others, including then-Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. Patricia was not only a witness to the shootings, but played an instrumental role in robbing the murderer of the opportunity to take even more lives. She has since testified before the U.S. Senate and dozens of other lawmaking bodies and media outlets. This modest woman has also been detained in the U.S. Capitol for protesting their rulings, but she remains undaunted, supporting organizations that assist gun violence survivors and work toward sensible gun laws. Patricia Meish, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. So, Pat, tell me about your life January 7th, 2011 and before. Well, I grew up in a modest suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, and lived in Kansas City for 10 years as an adult, and then um, lived in Texas for one year and discovered that that wasn't where we wanted to uh, be in the sun. So we came to Tucson, Arizona in 1983, and the rest is history. My husband had been in the air conditioning and heating business back in Kansas City. So he worked for a couple companies and then he started his own business. I um, was working for a real estate developer at the time he started his business. But after we had our son in 1987, I decided it was better to um, work for him and be able to spend more time with uh, Sean. So uh, from there, it was answering phones, climbing ladders, running parts, having Sean in the truck after school, and he had to sometimes do his homework by flashlight in the summer times. So, Patricia, what you're describing here is what I think lots of people would consider a normal life, a normal life with its normal ups and downs, but it's it kind of 
I don't, I don't want to say conventional, but kind of an organized way of living and not anything too radical or out there or any of that. And then January 8th happened. Are you sure you don't want to say boring? No, I don't want to say boring. <laughs> I, th- I think I would say traditional, calm, dare I say average or normal in those ways. So it, it was not a life where you sought controversy or where you felt particularly politically as an activist of any sort. That's correct. Yes. So then tell me about the morning of January 8th, 2011. Well, I'll tell you about the evening of the 7th first. I got a robocall saying, hi, this is your Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. I'm having my first Congress on your corner of the new session tomorrow. I would love to see you there. Well, I, my husband actually had done work for Gabby, but I had never met her. So it had been a very contentious election, and I decided I was going to be a balance to people who might be there who were not as um, happy with her record as I was. And as you know, my husband and I worked together um, sometimes seven days a week. But that was winter, so five days a week was usually sufficient. But we didn't tell each other what we did on weekends. We just did whatever we wanted. So he didn't know where I was. I didn't know where he was. He was with a friend from California having breakfast. And I went. I was early, which is not my usual MO, but I did get there early. I went in the grocery store, Safeway's right there. They're very generous with uh, Gabby in giving her space to have her Congress on your corner. So a little shout out to them. Um, (laughs) But I was the third one there and I signed in. Then I went into the grocery store. When I came out, now there's probably 20 people there. And I asked Daniel Hernandez, who was Gabby's new intern. And this was his first public event with her. So I asked him, are you still going to take people in order? And he said, I'll try. And I just felt that that was be rude. So I said, never mind. I'm just going to the end of the line, which probably saved my life Hmm. or saved me from being wounded. Not, not surely, but possibly. Sure. So um, I was just at the end of the line. I was eavesdropping on people. None of us knew each other. And I was just listening to Mary Reed talk about her daughter and uh, her son was there throwing rocks and she instructed her husband to scoot Owen out of the way. I know their names now out of the way. And that may have saved their lives because shortly after she told him that I heard a pop and a hesitation and then a series of pop, 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 pop. Although I've never shot a gun. I've never held a firearm, I don't think, other than a toy. Um, I knew it was a gun. I just absolutely knew it was a gun. And I started thinking, now this young man who shouldn't have a gun shot off 33 rounds in less than 20 seconds. Wait, let's do the math on that. 33 rounds in less than 20 seconds. So that's more than a bullet a second. 
Absolutely. Yes, it is. And every one of those bullets hit somebody or something. But in my mind, I thought quickly, which some surprised me, I think, after I thought about it. But I knew I couldn't run to the west, and I knew I couldn't run to the north. And running to the south would have ran me right into this young man who was a shadow, a black figure walking through the shadow shooting. So I just laid down on the concrete sidewalk, hoping that he would not see me or 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 whatever, and hope that if he did shoot me, it wouldn't be too painful. I wondered what it would feel like to be shot. Isn't it amazing what goes through the mind in those moments? Yes. One gentleman that used to be with a high security company told me he called that the mosaic of your mind, that you can process a number of things very quickly when necessary. But um, as I'm laying there, the shooting suddenly stopped. And there was a big commotion, and I found myself on the sidewalk laying right next to this young man who two brave heroes that I believe saved my life, Roger Salzgaber and Bill Badger, had tackled this young man. Roger was close to the front of the line. He'd worked very diligently on getting Gabby elected, and Bill was closer to me. Um, and you didn't know their names then. I did not know their names then, but they're my heroes. <laughs> but Bill was had a graze wound to the head. He said the, the perpetrator, we don't like to use the S word because the perpetrators like us to say. Well, and, and for, the, for my listeners, I am going to use the S word for a moment. You mean shooter. Yes. Correct? I mean, yeah. So we don't use that language because they seem to... I don't know, the, the glory of it, which is a bizarre word to use, but the glory of it seems to grow when you call them that. The infamy and the recognition. Yes, yeah. that's right. So again, who was the one that tackled this? So Roger Southgaper ran in behind him. Bill Badger was closer to me. Bill says the perpetrator looked at him, steadied his hand on the gun and aimed at Bill. Bill is former military. He's retired military. He ducked just in time, and the bullet <laughs> grazed the back of his head. But in spite of that wound, he jumped in, and between he and Roger, they tackled that young man to the ground and uh, right beside me. And they were shouting, get the gun, get the magazine. And I knelt right up. I was at the small of his back. They had him pinned on his right side, his right arm was outstretched with the gun in it. And I wasn't able to reach that because I think that young man was about six feet tall. But with his left hand, he was taking another magazine out of his pocket and I was able to take that away from him. Wait, so let me pause there for a second, Pat. You're not paramilitary. You were, you're not a grandma, but you're an age mate of mine, so you could be a grandma, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and 
I've seen you only in photographs, but you don't strike me as somebody who's a bodybuilder. <laughs> you oh know, so it's not like you're you're not somebody who's gonna dive in and be athletically aggressive or wrestling anybody. So still, you found somewhere in you this strength to reach out and grab this magazine from his hand, from his pocket. Yes, your perceptions are correct, by the way. <laughs> without without any insult, I trust. <laughs> That's correct. We okay. are who we are, right? <laughs> right. Um, yes, yeah, somehow, and I I don't know. I My husband says he wasn't surprised that I took that action. So mm. my memory is he took the magazine out of his pocket and fumbled it, and it started to hit the ground, and I was able to snag it before he could pick it back up. Wow. And that, I mean, the event was horrible enough with six people, including a nine-year-old, being murdered and so many terrible injuries, not the least of which is for the congresswoman herself. And still, it could have been even worse well, we'll never know for sure, but thanks to Bill and Roger, I really credit them uh, with being the source of my being able to have that small action compared to theirs. Well, it sounds like it took the team of you <laughs> to to change that. We'll never know for sure, but certainly the two of them deserve credit for being heroes that day. Well, as I... Think about your story then thereafter. Of course, it had to be just stunning. And wh what was your immediate, what was your sensation in those moments after the gunman was subdued? It was shocking and distressing. Um, it was really beyond belief for me mm. because we're in an upper middle class area of Tucson, where things like that aren't supposed to happen. It's just not within the realm of possibility. Well, it's really not supposed to happen anywhere. That's right. That's right. <laughs> of not, course. Not but, but I know what you're saying. It's not expected in, in some areas of cities where there's frequent gun action. Not that it should be, should happen, but it would be less surprising. That's right. And I, I had called my a friend that's a little older than me to see if she wanted to join me. And she couldn't because she was out in California caring for an elderly relative. But she had been listening to NPR that morning. And she called me shortly after the sheriff's department had come and I handed over the magazine to the female sheriff, who, by the way, apologized that they couldn't get there quicker, mm. that people were ignoring her siren and her light and her lights. They so, weren't pulling over to let them through, you mean? That's right. So my request of everybody is when you have an emergency vehicle of any kind, you have no idea where they're going. If you pull your ass over, you may save a life. You know, we, we yeah, I was just going to say, pull the hell over. That's right. <laughs> well, let, 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 me, let me go back for just one second. I'm, I'm trying to imagine, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my own hands and thinking, 
there's an assailant on the ground. There's got to be mayhem and crying and maybe screams. I don't know. And you're holding a gun magazine in your hand. What was your sensation of that moment? Well, the man who got the gun had asked me quite loudly and demanding to hand over that magazine to him that he was going to shoot the son of a bitch. (gasps) But I wasn't, again, the mosaic of your mind. I wasn't going to let that happen. There had been enough shooting, although I didn't know who or how badly people were injured. I just knew that there was a problem and that there was going to be no more shooting if I had anything to do with it. And you talked about the chaos and there was, it was unbelievably quiet and calm. I think at least where I was, there was of course sobbing and crying out, but it wasn't... It wasn't running around and no. madness in that way. And, and part of that, I give credit to, we were very lucky. There were three doctors and a nurse in Safeway that ran out and immediately started helping victims that were wounded or unfortunately observing who didn't need the help because they'd been murdered. Gosh, I'm I'm just envisioning sort of a a mash unit kind of kind of thing or a, a triage going on. Absolutely. You know, uh, David Bowman, whose wife is the nurse, Nancy Bowman, they were the, the husband and wife that were inside. Uh, David Bowman says, if there was one miracle that day, it's that there were three doctors in the grocery store instead of out on the golf course on a beautiful Saturday morning. <laughs> well, but, thank heaven for that. Absolutely. So they came out and did triage. By the time the professional first responders got there, they were giving them orders. This one has a chest wound. This one has a chest wound. This one has a leg wound. These two need to go in ambulances right away. We're not waiting for helicopters. Wow. So thank goodness they were there. Ron Barber, I really believe, would have died on the sidewalk. He was shot in the femoral artery, and he tells an interesting story, is that he knew, he watched Gabe Zimmerman, his co-worker, be shot in the head and crumble to the sidewalk and die in front of his eyes. But he knew if he could keep his eyes open, they would know he was alive. So he must have closed his eyes for just a minute. And one of the doctors, I think it was David Bowman, um, was doing triage on him and said, he's bled out. He's not savable. We need to move on. And Ron heard them and reached up, had the energy left to reach up and grab his arm. And so he knew, he said, no, he's not. And grabbed a a woman that was walking into the grocery store and said, come here and hold your hand right here as tight as you can. Wow. And it was right as his groin at his femoral artery. And she said, oh, I don't think I can do that. And so he said, you just do it. And so she was a good woman that followed orders too. And so um, she saved Ron's life that day. I'm just sure. And if you look at pictures, 
there, if you see pictures from that day, she's the woman who has blood on her jeans from her knees down. And all of that is Ron Barber's blood. So all of these regular folk, you know, just folk out to see their congressperson, do a little Christmas, post-Christmas shopping, uh, going into the grocery store, those things. And here all of a sudden they're recruited into this scene that none of them could possibly have imagined they were going to see that day. That's right. No one could have imagined at 10 o'clock what we would see at 1010. Let me go back to something that you said, that there was one person who wanted the magazine because he was going to shoot the, shoot the gunman. And it strikes me that that's kind of a little microcosm of a lot of the problem that so many people see more guns as the solution to the problem of too many guns. Um, I don't know this man at all, except his name and have met him one time. He prefers, he's a, a Vietnam vet that has PTSD mm-hmm. and he just wanted it to go away, I think, yeah. in my opinion. So, well, so that's a, that's a merciful bit of, of the information too, that perhaps his own history prompted that. But I guess, I guess I'm also thinking on the larger scale in, in our nation that so many people feel as though more armament is what they need against the gun violence problem, as opposed to the fact that we might have kind of maybe too many guns around. Well, you know that the second amendment thumpers, I call them say more guns make us safer. Well, if that was true, we would be the safest nation in the world. We have more guns in our country than any other developed country, and we have the worst gun violence problems. And you're not against the Second Amendment, I'm gathering. I am not. I think we can keep the Second Amendment whole and still have reasonable safeguards to keep firearms out of the hands of individuals that are a danger to self and others. So after this event, I'm not even going to ask you what that evening must have been like. You, I don't know if you, I don't know if I'd stop shaking for a few hours. But after this, you, from being this kind of regular citizen, you became an activist in a way. And you got into what John Lewis might have called some good trouble. <laughs> Can you tell me about the good trouble that you've gotten in since that event? Well, I was invited shortly after our event to make remarks down at the library where our main library in Tucson, where the Mayors Against Illegal Guns had a uh, a tour, a No More Names tour. And they asked me, to if I would come. And I said, sure. And the night before they said, well, can we see your remarks? And I said, I'm making remarks. And they said, well, we'd like you to. So I wrote up some remarks pretty quick and I'm pretty forthright in spite of being um, a bland person. I'm pretty- <laughs> I <didn't call> <laughs> um, so I had my son who was living in Tucson at the time review it. And he said, I don't know, mom, you've called out the NRA and the gun 
uh, lobby pretty hard. And by then I had, that was, I think, in March or April. So I'd had a month and a half to become aware of how lax our gun laws are and how the NRA has been quietly and the gun lobby quietly changing the legislatures over the last 30, 40 years to be more firearm friendly. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I was asked to make these remarks, I was pretty forthright and strong in how I felt about that. And so my son read him and he said, I think we should tone this down a little bit. So I did tone it down, but I was still pretty strong. And so after that event at the library, which is where I first met Nancy Bowman, the nurse who saved, helped save people's lives, they thanked me for doing that. And I became friends with the young man who had approached me initially. And I said to him, you've given me a voice. What are you going to do with it? (laughs) And um, so he said, I'm going to make it stronger. So that's when I was invited to testify before the Senate in a Senate committee, not before the Senate as a whole, but the Senate committee. And I can't even remember the name of it. Um, They were somewhat rude. Uh, Charles Grassley was texting while I was speaking. I didn't see him texting because I was holding up a composite picture of the six people who were murdered on the sidewalk that day. And I had little bios written on the back of the paper. And so I didn't see him, but if I had, I would have probably stopped and said, Senator Grassley you're being very disrespectful. I'm talking about people who no longer are living, breathing, that are empty chairs at a number of tables. Sounds like Senator Grassley is a lucky man that you didn't happen to see. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just guessing here. So, so just as we're, as I'm looking at time, I, I wish I could talk to you all day, but as I'm looking at time, you, you ended up testifying before these committees and then objecting to some of the rulings that have not been so friendly toward gun limitations? I think the one you're talking about is when the Manchin-Toomey bill, and I had been in D.C. that day when it came to the Senate before, for something else, uh, before I knew that was going to be there. But since I was there anyway, my friend Laurie invited me. Her daughter was shot but not killed at Virginia Tech. So she invited me to go sit with her in Harry Reid's box in the Senate. And she's been at it since 2006 or 2007. So she's been a great mentor. But after the they voted, I wasn't quite sure what had happened. So I asked her, I said, well, what happened? She said, it failed. And I said, well, what are we going to do about it? And she said, well, for right now, we're going to shout shame on you. So I have a very strong voice. Lori has a little tiny voice. My husband says I missed my calling. I should have been a drill sergeant. Uh, So I guess (laughs) Senator Grassley is lucky in that regard. But so we shouted shame on you. Within seconds, we were escorted out of Harry Reid's box and taken down stairs and waited to be interviewed by Secret Service and other law enforcement. And it was right after the Boston bombing. 
So everything was locked up tight. But anyway, we had a two-hour detainment and background check. We had to give them all kinds of information. So we had a two-hour background check for shouting. When you can get in most, the majority of states, a firearm that can shoot to kill without any kind of background check. The irony of that is just bizarre. (laughs) And so here's what I want to ask you, Pat. I'm thinking of the January 7th, 2011, Pat, and the after January 8th, Pat. When you look back at that woman who shouted shame on you in the Senate, that woman who would have scolded Chuck Grassley had had you seen what he was doing, where do you think you get that? That be, Because you strike me as somebody who, you're a law-abiding person, you follow the rules, you do what's polite, you serve others, you take care of your neighbors and your loved ones. Where do you think you get that? I say it goes from being sad on January 8th to being mad as hell and not going to take it anymore, if I quote that movie. Um, mad works much better for me than sad. It activates me. And I don't have a choice. I didn't know any of those people. And as horrible as that day was, it can be more emotional now. I know Christina Green, the little nine-year-old. I know her parents. I know I've seen in a small way how devastating it is. I'm sure I haven't seen all of it because I don't have... They, I'm sure they mourn in private much more than they do in public. But it, but it's personal to you now. It's personal. I know those people. I know Ron Barber. I know um, Gabe Zimmerman's mother and father. I know Ken Darushka, who was shot. I know Mavi Stoddard, whose husband was murdered. Um, and uh, I know all those people now. And so it really makes a huge difference in my conviction that others should not have to experience what they did, what what they experienced, or experience what I did, seeing six people murdered on a sidewalk. Mm. Well, it sounds like it's two things to me. It's both your anger, righteous anger, you're good and mad, <laughs> both good and mad, but also your compassion that you now have a close-up witness to what can happen when guns are in the wrong hands or used in the wrong way. Patricia, I'm so honored to meet you and honored to hear your story and to share it out. You're now in a, a network of survivors of gun violence. And I know that you have acquaintances across many of these tragic episodes Can you name a couple of the organizations that you know of that can be of help that others could either support or be part of if they too have witnessed or been been survivors of gun violence? Absolutely. So the first one I mentioned is Mayors Against Gun Violence, which was started by Menino of Boston and Bloomberg of New York. And they have now an umbrella 
organization called Every Town, which includes mayors, um, includes uh, survivors, and includes Moms Demand Action. There's the Brady Campaign has been around for a long time. If you're out in Los Angeles, there's a stellar group called Women Against Gun Violence. They would love to have your help and support. Uh, Women Against Gun Violence, I'll say it again, so if you didn't hear it the first time. Um, there is the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. There is States United Against Gun Violence. There's a fairly new organization that I love called GVpedia. They take, it's like Wikipedia, only gun violence-pedia. Oh, wow. The young man who started that, I and I'm, I'm sort of talking about what I've figured this out, but he has taken all the statistics that, you know, there was a book long ago in Far Away called How to Lie with Statistics. So he takes all these statements and figures out what what's the truth and how the comparisons are instead of just taking them at their word. And, and just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, just the facts. And right. he's, he's a great source for me and other people because when we need facts quickly, it's and easily, you know, you can mm-hmm. look through facts and and just be overcome just swarmed, by them. right? Yeah. So, one well, and let me mention one other organization, and that is a, a past guest on the Morning Glory Project has been uh, Lonnie and Sandy Phillips, who whose daughter was taken from them in the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting, and they they have an organization called Survivors Empowered. That's right, and they're all about helping survivors cope yes. with. The crazy stuff that happens after these horrible events, including not only the expense, but the scammers and the people that take advantage of them. It's horrifying to think about. Yes. Thank you for reminding me that there's so many groups and now people are starting to work together more. Um, Nobody has to be the the star anymore. I think we've learned that if we work together, we'll get farther faster. the other group, of course, is Giffords that uh, I think Sandy and Lonnie do a bit with them. Yes. Uh, but that's one of the ones that's near and dear to my heart since Gabby got out of Congress uh, that she started. Wonderful. Well, Pat, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project, sharing your story and inspiring us all to find unlikely bits of strength and courage when they're necessary. It's exciting to hear. And thank you so much for what you did. I I believe that you protected others and at risk to yourself as well. So thank you for being an unlikely hero. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor always to speak about my six that were dead on the sidewalk next to me. When I think about my conversation with Patricia Mesh. What stands out to me is how she found an unlikely power when she needed it. She probably would never have thought of herself as grabbing a magazine from somebody's hands, as being able to stand up in the Senate and say, shame on you. And to be somebody that could find that kind of power. It really amazes me. And you know, it makes me wonder, what is my untapped power? What is yours? What strength do you have that you don't know you have? 
but you'll have it when you need it. And why not tap into it even before you need it? Maybe it's finding your voice. Maybe it's finding your physical strength. Perhaps it's the strength to stand up to somebody who's unkind or cruel or abusive. Maybe it's the strength to leave. Maybe it's the strength to stay in a relationship where love is available. What strength might you have that you don't know you have? I like that. My hope is that you are safe and well in these strange and peculiar times, but that you are finding your own way to bloom. <laughs>